Well, the sermon I have for you all this evening is uh, a topic that's weighed heavily on my heart for, I would say, the past year. And it's kind of accumulated these past six months since my return to South Florida. And uh, can I just say, just in the prologue here, just a word of thanks once more to you all, uh, just for the warmth, the hospitality. I know it's kind of a given, right, <laughs> that you're going to receive me, you're going to... <laughs> You know, happy to see me once more back here in the fellowship. But it's just been wonderful. And every face I look at here, it's, uh, it's an individual story of warmth and uh, appreciation for me and support. And I just want to thank you from the pulpit here for this public moment that I've appreciated it. And it's registered in heaven. So thank you all for that. Uh, but getting back to the sermon at hand, what I had for you all this evening was, like I said, a, a theme that's been impressed upon me by the Lord. Uh, providentially, uh, in my circumstances, in my private devotion, uh, in my private study, in different relationships, you name it, God has spoken from every quarter. I've had a cacophony of witness, if you will, to this word tonight. So I'm hoping that I can do my uh, due diligence here to present to you what I believe the Lord not only has for me, but also has for you guys as well. But I've actually entitled the sermon it might sound a bit condemnatory, okay? So don't take this the wrong way. There's a happy ending, right? But the title is The Idols That Slay. That's the title for tonight. If you want a title, if you make notes, the title for tonight is The Idols That Slay. And I want to begin with a question. And somebody might know the answer to this question. Maybe some of you over here, maybe, as well. But if I was asking you, what is the chief purpose of man? What would your answer be according to the scriptures? It's a rhetorical question, and I, I can hear some whispers there, and you're on the right lines, yes. But I want to quote the Westminster Catechism here. The first question of that wonderful catechism says, The chief purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, if you're looking for your purpose tonight, if you're looking for direction tonight, that alone should suffice. That the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the number one hindrance to the fulfillment of that chief purpose that is ours, our privilege, is idolatry. So what I'm going to attempt to do in this sermon is unpack what it means to be either a an idolater or to have idols in our lives because they need to go. In fact, John Calvin said that our hearts, left to our own devices, is a factory of idols. That is this production line of idols that we create for ourselves. And this is what robs us of our true happiness and joy in Christ. So that's the chief purpose of man, according to the scriptures, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What does this practically look like in our daily lives? It sounds kind of majestic, doesn't it? And it truly is. We are to glorify God with everything that's within us. But practically within our lives, sometimes we don't join the dots. We, we, we affirm that position. But then we go to live it out and we find that there's all manner of failings and sins within us that prevent us from fulfilling that purpose. But Jesus said, did he not, in the Gospels, that the law is summed up in this, that you should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind and strength and thy neighbour as thyself. And that's a clue there because he's bringing it all down to a focal point because there are a lot of religious leaders, there are a lot of uh, pagans within Palestine asking Jesus what is the purpose of life what should we be doing with our lives and he actually gives them the law 
Now I won't finish with the law this evening, I'll finish with the gospel, but he first of all gives them the law. He says, I tell you what it is, the rich young ruler being a case in point, you have to obey all of God's commandments. That's what it means to glorify God practically, that we obey every single commandment that the Lord has given us in his holy law. And likewise, we are to love our neighbour as ourselves. And according to Romans 7.10, if you do indeed accomplish that, then you will have eternal life. Did you know that this evening? That hypothetically, and it's only a hypothetical, there's two ways you can have eternal life. You can either be perfect like Jesus and ascend to heaven as he did, or you can have his perfect life and his substitutionary torment in in your place and then you receive that as a free gift. Those are the two ways to heaven. It's either a perfect life or another perfect life lived in your place. And for all those laws and commandments you are, you are broken, Jesus himself goes to the cross and pays the penalty for those broken laws that you have broken and violated and transgressed. What a wonderful saviour. Not only does he die in our place, he lives a perfect life in our place. But he doesn't serve us as an end in itself. Yes, it is to bring ultimate glory to the name of the Father and to the triune God. But also, it's to do something in this period we call the church age. When he saved us, he didn't immediately take us to heaven, did he? He didn't immediately rapture us into the third heavens so that we could fellowship with Christ without the restraints of this mortal coil that we find ourselves in. But he didn't do that. But in his wisdom, he has created this period of time when we're caught, if you will, between two ages. We have the age that is passing away, according to 1 Corinthians 7. In Galatians 1.4, it's described as a present evil age. And the age that is to come, where we have our full inheritance, and this is glorification, eternal life, a place at the table with the Lord, that's our future. But right now, we are caught within two ages. And the question of the ages is, who is going to be your Lord? Because every day we are bombarded with other things that masquerade as the chief purpose of man. And we'll look at some of these particulars in a few moments. But that's where we're at as a people. And it's not just unique to ICI Fellowship. I've been to California, I've seen the struggles over there. I've been on the mission field, I see the same problems and issues there. That we're all in this battle to put God first and say no to idols and idolatry. So idols prevent us from fulfilling the purposes of God. Idolatry is the chief um, tool that Satan has in his arsenal to stop you from fulfilling his purposes. So let's unpack this a bit, like I said before. What does idolatry look like? Well, let's go to Romans 1 for an ugly picture of what idolatry does. And as you're going to this passage, uh, you might already recall to mind um, what this passage is about. And you might be saying to yourself, wow, Jonathan, I know what that passage is about and that's not me. I mean, doesn't it go on to talk about all this depravity and all this debased mind stuff and calloused hearts and everything else in between? That's not us, right? Well, maybe not in the extreme sense, in the final sense. But you'd be surprised, with an honest look at this passage, how much of it you can find within yourself at times. But let's read together 
from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is what Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, now the bad news. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. And carrying on says, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonour their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. So here we have it, the bad news, the plight, the, the condition of man in his natural state outside of Christ. It's one of idolatry. That according to this passage, he's addressing this Gentile church who didn't have the Mosaic law, didn't have the oracles of God according to Romans uh, 11 and 3. But they were born into this world in the Roman Empire, in that pagan culture of polytheism. And yet they knew the one true God. How do we know that? Well, in verses 18 and 19, it says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven, first and foremost. That's a present tense. That's an ongoing reality, that his wrath as we speak is being revealed from heaven. But what does it look like? Is it burning buildings, earthquakes, tornadoes? Is something Pat Robinson was saying the other day correct? You know, is that, is that where we find the, the scriptural gravitational point here? No, I don't believe so. It can be those things. But what we do see in this passage is, as we read on, uh, a debased mind, a hardened heart. And then we have this terrible list that concludes in verse 32. And I won't go into it right now because I like you guys. You guys are not doing that stuff. But you get the idea. That's what it looks like in reality. But it begins in verse 18 by saying the wrath of God is revealed. Why? Because men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They have to first have the truth in order to then suppress it. You can't suppress what you don't possess. You know, have you ever played in the swimming pool before? I know we, me and David did a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I was going to make it a childhood story, but give, it, give the honest answer. You know, we'll do it this afternoon if we could or this evening. But uh, I remember playing that game in the swimming pool where you have the uh, beach ball, right? You have this beach ball and you try to press it under the water and guess who has it. Or you're just having a laugh. You're not even, even having a game. You just press it under the water and see how long you can hold it under. What happens eventually to that beach ball as soon as you let go? Pops up, right? The beach ball is pressed under the water as long as you're extending effort. But as soon as you let go, the beach ball immediately pops up. And that's kind of an illustration of what man is like in his rebellious state. He knows God. He understands that God is. But he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. He's holding down that beach ball of truth. He's all that 
It's not really there, is it? I mean, you can still see it through the water. It's huge, it's massive, you can't miss it, right? But man in his futility and his folly is pressing down this truth that he knows in his heart. And as soon as he encounters the Christian, and so, as soon as he encounters the evangelist or the apologist, by God's grace, that will pop up. In fact, I was having a conversation with a gentleman uh, this week, and he said to me, in, in honesty, Jonathan, after the conversation I had with you, it bothered me for a couple of days. That's like, sweet. Yes. <laughs> Back of the net. <laughs> it's not about winning points, but it does prove. <laughs> It does prove the point that man does have this knowledge of this all-glorious God. Because, not only does he have it innately, but it says in the passage here in verse uh, 15, uh, 19 and 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so that they are on an apology, without an apologetic. Without an excuse. So I don't care who they are or who we are, everybody knows that Jehovah is. It's not up for debate. It's not to be brought into question. Everybody knows innately and through the observation of the outside world that God is. Because his divine attributes are clearly seen through what is created. He is not creation, he is transcendent, he is distinct from his creation. But what man does is he sees that even in a mad form because of human sin and he seeks to make a God after his own likeness and after his own image. And that's why we have this horrible list but it begins by perverting and distorting that creator-creature distinction. I want to worship something that I can see. I want to worship something that's in God's creative order. And if I can do that, then I can control that idol. If I can do that, then that idol can serve me. So this is the heart of human idolatry. In fact, it's hubris. That's what's going on here. Hubris, that word means to think you're better than the gods. But we've got ourselves into this lie because of the activity of Satan, because of our own uh, folly that we're going to be more satisfied, more fulfilled, more happy in serving idols than serving the one true God. Because after all, doesn't the one true God just have all these commandments, all these do's and don'ts? A gentleman was saying to me the other day, I mean, you become a Christian, and that gets tough, right? And you can't do that. You can't have this frivolous, pointless time at this nightclub. You know, you can't... You can't uh, Stay up to three o'clock in the morning doing certain activities that you may once enjoy doing. You say, what's the point? It's not worth it. Because I'm enjoying this frivolous, passing, <laughs> empty void I call fun. Right? <laughs> you know, I remember once talking to a young boy. He was only six. He was only six. Bless his heart. Very honest response from a six-year-old. We were at Disney World. Uh, the church I used to pastor at. And... Uh, this kid was just loving Disney, like me, when I, even now actually, but, but certainly back then, right? But I kind of saw myself in him a bit. He was just having a blast. And I said to him, I said, uh, I can't even remember his name, I think his name was, uh, it was Paul Walker, so I can't remember his name. But anyway, I said to him, uh, do you really enjoy this place? He goes, oh yeah, I love it. I love Disney, me. I said, oh yeah, me too, me too. Are you having fun? Oh yes, lots of fun. And then I, it got me thinking a little bit. I said, can I ask you a question, young man? 
And he went, yeah. <laughs> I said, if it was up to you, what would you do all day? Have fun. <laughs> all day, 24-7, in non-interrupted fun. That's what I would have. And that made me chuckle, and it was nice because the kid was a kid. But what happens is, the Bible says, when I was a child, I was thought as a child, I acted as a child, right? But when I come a man, I'm supposed to put those things away, right? Because six-year-olds get really excited about that stuff. And it's cute that six-year-old does. But when the adult does, when we need to have 24 hours of dancing with the stars, and we need to have, you know, American Idol, who's going to win? American Idol, there's a clue there. Idol, you know, think about it, join the dots. Right, right. Who's going to win? Well, I, I think it's going to be the gay guy. I think he's going to win. Oh, no, I think it's going to be this guy or that woman or whatever, the one with the tattoos. You know, it's like, oh, and it's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> and I want to text in. I want to text in because this is it, you know. It, it's all coming down to my vote. And that's not a personal testimony, okay? That's not, that's not, that's not an autobiographical statement, okay? <laughs> but it could have been, okay, if I, got, if, if I allowed myself to, uh, to fall for the shallowness that is uh, given to us in our media today. That, oh yes, let's just worship people. Or worship things. Things that God created for us to use, but ultimately to bring glory to Him. So, we see the plight of mankind who's lost in idolatry. In fact, when Jesus returns, He's going to judge every single act of idolatry. That's what's going on when it comes to human sin. We have all these symptoms, as Romans 1 records. But what Christ is going to do when he returns, the reason why we call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is he's going to put an end to idolatry. He's going to put an end to things that are not truly all glorious as he is. He's going to say, no more of that. You're not worshipping dumb idols. You're not watching American Idol. Okay, I'm going to stop that political reference, right? You're going to worship the true God. Because that's where the life is, right? The woman at the well, right, in Samaria. So where do we worship? And Jesus answers that. Well, the, the time is coming where you're neither worshiping this pagan temple or in Jerusalem. But God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. We get the spirit right part sometimes, don't we? We worship Him in spirit and we... Uh, have a big whoop-de-doo, you know, and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I endorse it. I embrace it. Okay, that's me, right? We want all that, right? But it's also in truth that we worship the Lord in truth, do we not? And what is His truth? Well, his truth is wonderful. And it's all summed up in Jesus. But this is why we toy with idolatry, because we truly don't see the glory of the gospel in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and we fail to see the true worth and value of our Creator. I honestly believe, folks, that if we just grasp that tonight, 90% of your wrestling with sin would cease. Because you could see it for what it was. And say, so, well, I don't want that. In, in comparison to this, the glory of God, the purposes of God, the majesty of God, the value of God, the worth of God. But this is where we find ourselves. And even as I preach here, you know I'm a preacher. <laughs> what is it? Son of a preacher, man, right? I love to preach. But I find myself at times 
a little inconsistent. A lot inconsistent. On some bad days. Mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah, it's all about God. John the Gangry wants to tell you all it's all about God and his life's all about glorifying him. And then there's times. Oh no, no, no. It's, it appears, <laughs> it appears, Jonathan, that it's kind of about you, isn't it? <laughs> I know you're saying all that stuff because it impresses people, but under the microscope of my holiness, seems to be a lot of it in for you. I remember once talking to my mother on the phone. Bless her heart, she's only back there right now looking at the kids, you know. What a, what a woman, right? <laughs> but I remember her telling me on the phone one time, I was way up to two decisions, or two propositions, and there was A and B. But B, option B had become like option F for me, okay? And I kept on talking about option A. You know, no, this is, this, is good, this is a good opportunity, mommy. You know, I've got this, this, and this opportunity over here. And I mentioned my name in that sentence, either directly or indirectly, about ten times, you know, or in that, in that, that paragraph of option A. And then when I got to option F, as I perceived it, mistakenly, I said, oh, I can do this, help people, you know. Do a bit of mercy ministry. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to option A. In option A. <laughs> you know. I'm only going to be out there. I'm only going to be doing it. You know. And uh, well, I said, you know, you, know uh, you are talking about yourself an awful lot when it comes to this option over here. I said, yikes. Yeah. I think you may have a point, mother. And uh, she did. So it was option F. which actually in God's kingdom. As option A. Yeah. But this is what I'm saying to you guys tonight. If you get this wrong, if you don't allow God to speak to you into your heart, then you could potentially take something, choose something that in God's kingdom is option F. It's a flunk, it's a, you know, you fail. And you could miss out on option A. The best, the very best. But the problem is, what I, what I said earlier, is we don't truly, truly no God at times. Because the Bible says that this God is all glorious. That he is invisible. That he is not created. He is uncreated. The Bible also says that he is infinite. That he is self-existent. That he depends on nothing for his life and well-being. He is perfect. He is most wise and most righteous and most holy. He dwells in an inapproachable light. Have you ever considered that? I'm sure you have, but to consider it once more, he dwells in an inapproachable light. That means we're never going to have exhaustive penetration to who he is. That we can never get fully to the substance of his being, because he's just so great, he's just so beyond us, he's just so infinite. That's the God who loves us, that's the God who became a worm and died on a cross for us, quote Psalms 22 there, just so that we could be reconciled to him. And then in our folly, and in our sin, we turn around and go, nah, nah, I appreciate it. I'm glad you saved me, but this over here, this over here is wonderful. How this makes me look good. How this serves my purposes. That's what I want. And I appreciate it, you know, like a backhand pass. Thank you for salvation, like this. We're not supposed to treat salvation like that, like a backhand pass. And we just walk on our merry way. It's when we turn. And behold the glory of God, when that which was once abhorrent to us becomes all glorious to us and all wonderful yes. to us. Repentance is to turn away from that sin and serve the one true God, as I know you all know. But this is the God we give up on. This is the God that we, we uh, 
in a sense, trade. We don't ultimately because our glory belongs to him. But in our tiny minds, at times, that's what we're attempting to do. The Bible also says that our God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He is sovereign. The Bible says the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. It says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The answer being no. The psalmist concludes, the Lord sits in the heavens. He has done as he pleased. That nobody can thwart his purposes. Ephesians 1.11, he is the God who works everything after the counsel of his own will. To the praise of the riches of the glories of his grace. You're getting a picture here of just how wonderful God is. And how powerful and awesome God is. Also, the Bible says that God is immutable. What does that mean? It means he doesn't change. In Malachi, he says, I am God, I change not. He doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't say, well, I like you today, Jonathan, but, you know, not now. (laughs) Not tomorrow, certainly not. No, he is steadfast. He is fearful. He is unchangeable. He is immutable. And the Bible says, and this is the one that often shocks people, the Bible says, because he's all glorious, and he is the forever blessed God, as we read in Romans 1, God, in his divine nature, does not suffer. <gasps> he doesn't suffer? What? No, 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 that's, that's my point of identity with him. <laughs> I suffered, therefore he suffers. <laughs> no, Jesus suffered. He had the accumulated total of human suffering when he died on the cross for our sins. Yes. So yeah, God's fully aware of what it means to suffer. But when it comes to his eternality, to his divine nature, he is impassable. That means without passion, he does not suffer. Yes, he has emotions and he has, he has dispositions that are, that are more deep and profound and rich than we can ever be, even begin to scratch the surface with. But he himself does not suffer. He's not right now in heaven going, Oh no, <laughs> I've got a bunch of rebels running out there, <laughs> practicing idolatry, what can I do? <laughs> Jesus, please, you have to go down there and sort it out. <laughs> No, the Bible says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And even though we can't join us all together because he's God, but God in his sovereign, holy decree had a purpose before the very foundations of the earth. And it was summed up in Christ that the Lamb of God was to be slain in God's mind before the very foundations of the world. So it's not plan B, is it? And God's not playing games. He's very serious about bringing glory to himself. And that is the age-old battle. Who gets the glory? Is it going to be us creature dudes? Yeah. Right? Because after all, I mean, look at us, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, pretty special, right? Or is it going to be God? The all-glorious God. Does he get all the glory? Does he get all the praise? And that's why Job needs to have an interview with him. As righteous as Job was, as fearful as Job was, God asked him about 72 questions and he didn't answer one of them. <laughs> he said, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the sons of God sang for joy? Where were you when I called the clouds together and the, the firmaments were separated? Where were you? And Job said, I have spoken too soon. And I imagine him putting his hand over his mouth. Who do I think I am? And sometimes... We need to come to that recognition within ourselves. Who do we think we are? To say no to God and yes to our idols. Can you understand 
why God sends people to hell. You know, we don't talk about hell a lot, do we? Because, you know, God is loving, God is gracious, and God is all those wonderful things. And you know, I'm not here just putting on a show tonight. Or trying to impress you with my sermon skills or whatever. I'm here to communicate truth. I know you're a mature group of people, but you understand why God sends people to hell. Because they're trying to deify themselves. That's an abomination to God. And through their attempt to deify themselves, they, sh they serve worthless idols. I'll show you an example of it in Isaiah. Isaiah, I would say, was the richest, spiritually speaking, prophet that we have, as far as what we have of his prophecies. And in your own time, if you do have a devotional time this week, I would encourage you to read chapters 40 to 48 of Isaiah for the study of the attributes of God. I mean, this covers the full range of how glorious God is. But in Isaiah 41, through Isaiah, God is addressing the futility of idols. So 41 verse 21. And what God does, He gets a bit sarcastic. You know, he uses a bit of satire. You know, sometimes the Lord does that. Remember Elijah and the worshippers of Baal? <laughs> right? Well, maybe your God is on the toilet or something like that, I think it was, right? I mean, that's satire, right? I don't mean to pollute this pulpit, but that's, that's satire. So here, in verse 21, he says, Set forth your case, saith the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know the outcome of them, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that you may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Abomination is he who chooses you. So what, what is God saying here? He's saying, okay, you think these idols are so great? Let's forward a test. Let them present their case, if they're all that. Do they know the future? Verse 22. Can you tell us the form of things? Can you tell us the outcome of it? Can you declare those things which are to come? Tell us what is to come hereafter, verse 23. That they may be gods. And then he gets really sarcastic. He goes, do good, or do harm, do something. Okay, please, embarrassing. <laughs> right? Do at least something. And... He concludes by saying, they do nothing. Habakkuk also agrees with this. These dumb idols with, with made out of wood or brass or even precious stones. They can't speak, they can't prophesy, they can't predict the future. They're, they're not sovereign, but yet you serve them. But notice verse 24. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. The person choosing that idol is an abomination. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be an abomination to God. So that I can just have the payoff of the shallow experience of serving my idol. And you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, this is, this is clearly Old Testament language, this is clearly pagan culture, but we're here in South Florida, you know, we have Starbucks, we have, you know, culture here, <laughs> like that. No, that's a joke. Sorry, I've got the attention of Brian. Um, <laughs> we know we've got, we've got all these wonderful, sophisticated tools and 
gadgets in our day and age, you know, we've got Google, we've got the internet, you know, <laughs> we've got all this stuff. So this is just for them, right? This is not for us. Well, our, our idolatry, as I perceive it, is not as cross as this. Now we, I think, here secretly treasures up, you know, affections for a golden brazen statue somewhere that you have in, in your backyard. I don't think that's what we're dealing with this evening. But what does it practically look like? What do we worship in our lives at times? Well, here's a good one. I think from time to time, it's got the best of us. What other people think. Oh, that's so important. <laughs> that is so precious. My little precious. <laughs> what other people will think of me? So it's about God about you. Oh, it's, I guess it's about you again, isn't it? It's about me again. What people will think about me. That's one. Another one is what people think of me and my family. You know, my family. And you know how much I love my family. But I can't make it an idol, can I? As much as I love my dad. You know, if there's ever a temptation to idolatry, right? <laughs> I mean, as a godly father, I'm not just saying this just to promote him. It's true. I mean, he is truly a man of God. But it's only because of God's grace upon his life. And that grace, in turn, coming down to me and to David, to Rachel. So we can enshrine individuals, can't we? Kids. Oh, kids. Yes, we thank the Lord for children. And I don't have children, okay? So I'm going to try carefully here. But... Do we sometimes have idolatrous impulses towards the younger? Yes. The way we idolize the youth. Because mm -hmm. the youth, right, that's where the life is. Why is there so few youth people here tonight? Because the youth dominate the culture. Our childish immature culture, but they dominate the landscape. Because the youth, well, they're hip, they're trendy, they're all that. And that's where the life is. That's where it's cool. Right? And that's why so many people are not here this evening. Because the, apparently there's something cool going on. And I remember explaining to a youth group one time, what does coolness look like if I was to sum it up in body language? By the perceptions of the world, by the way, and me giving comic relief to this, right? <laughs> Don't brace yourself. Coolness is kind of... Yeah, whatever. Yeah. No, no, nothing moves me. Nothing inspires me. Nothing grand, glorious, or praiseworthy has ever happened in my life. Praise nothing. Just praise me. Hallelujah me. Hallelujah me. Because I am so cool and laid back. You guys can go to church and you need this Jesus. You know, you need you know, this, this dependency. You need to worship this, this uh, invisible God which clearly isn't there. Come on, where is he? Show me him. One guy said to me not so long ago, show me. Well, the Bible says he's invisible. So what do you want me to do? <laughs> he is uncreated we shouldn't expect to see him walking down the street you know in South Florida someplace oh there he is nice to see you God yeah yeah I'll be talking soon right we shouldn't expect that should we he's the invisible God he's the triune God and that's why he dwells in an unapproachable light as I said earlier but we serve these idols and these idols this is the tragedy 
of idolatry. If you have a tight fist towards it, and you won't let go, eventually that idol will betray you. Eventually that idol will come back to bite you. Think of Absalom in the Old Testament. His hair, which was a symbol of his self-glorification. How did he die? His hair. That which he prized the most. And it's interesting, he abused ten women just prior to his death. And there was ten men that took him out and killed him. See, that hair, it just looks like, well, he's just a bit effeminate, right? He's just a boy George, that's all it is. Just call it girl George and get over with, right? But... No, that's not what's going on there. It's what's behind that hair, which is an idolatrous heart. But what happened is, that very thing that he worshipped came back to bite him. Or a lesser known story, King Sennacherib, when he's worshipping the god of Dagon, and his two sons come in and slay him right there before his own god. And this was after a defeat in battle, after King Hezekiah, and through the assistance of an angel, had destroyed, I think, 185,000 of his men. And they, well, I'm going back to my God, don't worry, I'll go back to my God, Dagon's going to take care of everything. And then his own sons come in and finish him off. And let's bring it to the New Testament. How about Diotrephes? I think in 3 John. It's only one verse, but he goes down for all of eternity as a complete idiot. Right? Because of this one verse. It says, it says, and Diotrephes loves to have preeminence over the people. If I was we in a congregation about our size, but oh, got to feel important, got to dominate and feel powerful and in charge, because that's the only way I feel I could be happy. If I'm in control, if I'm in control, then, I, then it's okay. It's idolatry. And it's just one verse. He really shouldn't have any more verses dedicated to him. But he goes down in all of eternity, as a guy who had the privilege of serving in Christ's church, and yet he hoarded it to himself. Yes. And that, my friends, is when idolatry gets the most ugly. Mm-hmm. When it happens in the church. Yeah. When there's idols in the church. Because, I don't mean to stretch this, okay? I don't mean to take this too far as a thought. But we come to church to worship God. <laughs> it's a novel idea. We come to church to glorify Him. Yes. That's what it's about. That's why we call it church. So when we see idols in the church, it's oxymoronic. It's antithetical to the very purpose of what God designed for the church. And that's when it creeps in. In fact, I heard a story just this week. Um, there was a very famous singing group in Australia. You know who it is, it's Hillsong, right? But apparently there was this gentleman who uh, claimed that he was uh, fatally ill and uh, apparently he got healed and then they wrote this whole song about his healing and Hillsong wouldn't normally allow somebody to come in and fill a spot of that of that preeminence in worship but because of his testimony because of how glorious it was said you're the man we're going to give you a special slot to sing the song and the song's anointed the song's wonderful when you listen to it you know God is my healing and it's wonderful but turns out, he made it up. He made it up. And I, I only share that story to show you how bad it can get. 
Because we look at these, oh, look at these pagans. <laughs> look at these pagans in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, what do they look like now, eh? Well, I'm glad that was back then, where now we know sober thinking. It can creep in to the church, can it not? Or guys in ministry, like Diotrephes. You know, you just flick through the channels, right? I don't mean to get too polemical here, but you need to give, you need to have a visual of how idolatry seeps into the church. And there's guys, yeah. they're just like, just send us your money. Yeah. Because I need to stay on air. Because if I don't stay on air, then I don't get to look profiled. And if I don't get to look profiled, I don't get to look powerful. If I don't get to look powerful, I don't get the glory. So send us your money. Now, I'm not saying it's always that. Sometimes there are legitimate TV evangelists and whatnot, so I'll qualify it that way. But come on, you know, more times than not, is it entirely pure? I would say, you know what? Let's just let the whole TV network die. Just let, just like, you know, just give it up. <laughs> Do some street evangelism. You know, you're called to be an evangelist. Do some street evangelism. Hand out some tracts and just trust God. Amen. Be amazing to see what God does. Yes. But somewhere along the line, some gentlemen have got into their minds. Now, that's not going to make me happy. That's not going to be fulfilling. This over here is going to be fulfilling. This idol that I serve, that is what's going to make me happy. But as we see there, eventually the idol comes back to bite you. And I'll just finish on some scriptures here. If you go to Revelation, let's go to the back of the Bible. Verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous, blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of, uh, of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and the beast, and the seven heads, and the horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go into destruction. And the dwellers of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it is, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads and the seven mountains of which the woman is seated. They are the seven kings for whom they have fallen. And I think I'll stop there. But Basically, this passage, I don't want to get into eschatology tonight, um, but I believe this is a reference to Israel, if you will, getting into bed with Rome to persecute the church. Notice the woman persecutes the saints of the church. That apostate Israel, that all covering community that rejected their Messiah, was so bent on destroying the true church, the new church, and the new covenant, that it even actually join partnership with Rome and says this woman because remember whenever Israel was unfaithful it was described right this is graphic but it was described as an unfaithful woman rides the beast of Rome and I align myself with Rome so I can persecute the church but the passage goes on to say that the beast eventually turns round 
destroys the woman. See, that idol that they were serving of their religious national identity. This is now just the first century. I'm not saying anything about our beloved Jews who we pray for around the doors. This is the first century Jews in that old covenant context. But they honestly thought that, well, if I just align myself with Rome, then I can still have my idol of this Judaic national identity that I treasure above Christ. But what they should have done is embrace Christ. But what they did is the opposite. See, the religious leaders were full of idolatry. And they did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. And the tragedy is of it all, eventually that idol turned around and betrayed them and devoured them. And by way of application, bring it right now to our everyday life. Because there's been some heavy thoughts for you to chew on this evening. Is there idolatry in the secret compartments of your life? It's nothing to do with me, this. This is to do with you and God. I've got my own issues, okay? God's been dealing with me this past year and, and the next year and the next year, okay? This has nothing to do with me. But because of our sinful nature at times, we have this tendency to elevate and idolatrize things that we shouldn't uh, have in that preeminence. We should only have Christ in that exalted, glorified position. Nothing else. And like I said, it could be what people think of me. It could be my education. It could be my kids. It could be uh, being a successful business person. It could be even church. It could even be the pulpit. It could be a whole plethora of things. But my friends, if you buy that lie, if I buy that lie, I'm not a fool. I'm a real fool. And you would be a fool as well. Because God has given us so much in Christ. I was reading a passage there just at random before I got up to preach. And it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the disputing over who baptized who in Corinth. Oh, I'm with Apollos. See that idolatry. Well, I'm with this guy. Oh, I'm with this guy. And Apostle Paul has to come in and go, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, I can't even remember who I baptized, actually, to tell you the truth. I came to preach Christ and him crucified. He said, but have no more dispute in this area. Because all things are yours. Whether past or future, death or life or the things to come. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. So he said, all oh, this talk over who has the preeminence in the church? Or who has what over whom? It's irrelevant. Because Apostle Paul knew his own sin. And how much he'd been forgiven. And he had come to that bedrock conclusion. That Apostle Paul is nothing. Jonathan Gowdry obviously is nothing. Nothing. Jesus Christ is everything. It's him who's worthy. Of all our prayers, devotion, and adoration. And that, my friends, is the gateway to eternal life. That, my friends, is the door to joy everlasting. And I don't want anybody in this room to miss out on that joy. I don't want anybody in this congregation this evening to fall short of what God has for you. Because the Bible does say there are some that bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, and then some even 100-fold. It might be a bit greedy of me for you guys, okay? But I would love it if you were hundredfold bearing people. And notice the pattern there. It's 30, 60, you think it would be the 90, right? But it's like 100, it's like jackpot. It's like, just go for it. Live for the glory of God. And that might mean, in the eyes of the world, nobody really cares. 
In fact, I've said it before, and my sister quoted it back to me one time. I said, yeah, it's true, but that's for other people. <laughs> but a promotion in God could be a demotion in man. It could be, just to just give you a hypothetical, a promotion in God is to step down from a public office in ministry on work and go and work in some mercy ministry and maybe nobody come up to you and say thanks. But that's where the life is, my friends. And if, if I can't walk in that life, I need to close this Bible and go out there and live like a pig. I mean, I don't mean that to be extreme, but I honestly believe the Bible gives me that dichotomy. It's all or nothing. I either worship the true God, or I just might as well just serve idols to the day that I die and face judgment. And I'm happy to see your faces tonight because I have every confidence that you have the same conviction as me, that we're here to worship God through Jesus yes. Christ. Yes. And it's a wonderful thing. And it never gets old, is it? It never gets old. It's always rich. It's always meaningful. It's always purposeful. And he's here for you tonight. Yes. So as I conclude here, I call Vince back up to uh, lead you in community. Think on these things this evening. Hallelujah. That he's called you to glorify him and worship him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.